Local media outlets are essential. In 2020, as communities, businesses, and citizens came to terms with a pandemic that disrupted the flow of daily life, the need for accurate local information escalated. Information including which businesses were open, which were closed, where to get tested, and vaccinated. When media organizations closed their newsrooms and went remote, the reporting did not stop. They held local government accountable, documented historic moments for social justice, shared the humanity behind tragedy. Meanwhile, the funding for that work was drying up. Businesses whose ads helped support the media were closed. Revenue disappeared. Donating today at SaveChicagoMedia.org can ensure your local newsroom continues reporting the stories that matter despite the current economy. Investing in local media is funding your community. Give today and help us do the work that matters. Donate now at SaveChicagoMedia.org. Bienvenidos a todos. You are listening to the Paseo Podcast, where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. My name is Joshua Smeza de Leon, and I want to thank you for downloading this episode. If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are streamed, give this podcast a like and subscribe to it. It makes a world of difference. We started this podcast as a way to bring attention to the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here in Paseo Boricua in Chicago and around the world. From La Isla to the diaspora, we hope you enjoy what you hear. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Paseo Podcast. It's Joshua here. If you want to follow me, I'm at JS De Leon on Twitter. If you want to pitch a story, reach out to us on our website, paseomedia.org. We have our entire library of episodes up there. So if you want to hear different stories about Boricuas, not only from La Isla, but throughout the world, uh, give that a visit and, and uh, give our uh, content a listen. Hopefully you like what you hear. Find us at Paseo Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We post the interview portions of our episodes on our YouTube channel, so you can give those a watch there. While you're there, though, if you like what you see, like our videos and subscribe to our channel. It really helps us out. On today's show, we welcome Monica Cruz. She is a labor reporter with Breakthrough News and host of the weekly podcast on the picket line. She's a third generation Afro-Boricua raised in New Jersey and an organizer with the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Needless to say, based on her background, there is a lot of uh, ground we could have covered in our discussion. Monica was um, generous enough with her time to, to allow us to cover a number of different topics. Um, so, you know, really looking forward to, to sharing this discussion because we talk about uh, important legislation in Congress that I'm really um, excited for. It's called the PRO Act, a major labor legislation that could transform the lives of working class people in labor organizing and what that means for Puerto Ricans, the wider BIPOC community, and just the working class as a whole. We're also gonna talk about why it's so hard to find a good mofongo. I mean, it's hard to find a good joint that makes it just right. Um, in addition to that, we're gonna talk about where mainstream media is lacking in their reporting on labor. And we'll also talk about her labor reporting for Breakthrough News, especially what she's experienced during the Amazon warehouse unionization efforts in Alabama. There's a lot more we discussed, but man, I'm just happy I found a Boricua organizing and reporting on labor. I've been searching and searching, so really fortunate to have Monica on today to express her views and her insights. I know there's Boricuas out there doing the work, but 
we're just not as visible as we should be, in my opinion. I could be wrong, but in my opinion, I just don't see enough of us prominently lifted up in those spaces. Um, but before we get into the interview, couple reminders. Like you heard at the top of the show, and we'll hear again in Spanish deeper into this episode, the Paseo podcast in partnership with the Chicago Independent Media Alliance, or SEMA, is in a month-long fundraiser campaign. We've strived, strived to share Puerto Rican stories that hold local government accountable, documented historical moments of social justice, and shared the humanity behind tragedy. If you want to be a part of our work, visit SaveChicagoMedia.org to donate and to ensure independent media like the Paseo podcast continues reporting the stories that matter despite the current economy. Again, that's SaveChicagoMedia.org. I've also included the link in the show notes for reference. There's 42 other outlets participating, so even if you don't want to support us, the website offers the option to donate an amount directly to any or all outlets involved in the campaign. Every bit helps. We're a small but scrappy group of volunteers, so anything you can give really helps us do the work that matters. Again, every bit helps. Also, don't forget to register for our June 12th Baseo podcast discussion group event in partnership with the Chicago Public Library. It's virtual, so you don't even have to be in Chicago to participate. You don't even need a library card. So uh, just register, show up, would love to see you. We're gonna discuss topics we cover here on the show. So if you wanna dive deeper into the topics we discuss on the show and meet me, uh, at least virtually, then check out the partners section of our website, baseomedia.org, and click on the Chicago Public Library logo in our partners section. So if you want to dive deeper into the topics we discuss in the show and meet me, then check out the partners section of our website, baseomedia.org, and click on the Chicago Public Library logo. Or you can go to the events tab on chipublib, that's C-H-I-P-U-B-L-I-B.org, once there, go to events on uh, June 12th or type in Paseo Podcast and we'll pop right up. Click on the event and register to be part of what I'm sure is going to be a meaningful discussion on Boricua issues. Now, let's cover some news. In case you missed it, Aldia reported that uh, former governor of Puerto Rico, Ricardo Rosselló, who was forced to resign after over a million Puerto Ricans protested on the island to have him removed from office due to private messages that showed his misogynistic views of women and the LGBTQIA community and his heartless views towards the victims of Hurricane Maria, well, he's returning to politics. Let that sink in for a second. He's returning to politics. Um, as of this recording, votes are still being counted, but um, he is favored as a candidate by write-in vote in the special election held this past Sunday to elect six delegates to promote Puerto Rican statehood. So essentially, he's going to be a lobbyist for statehood, which is odd considering Boricuas and La Isla are paying for this when there isn't a, really a clear decision on where we stand on PR status. But uh, nonetheless, you know, voter turnout for this election was abysmal. Here's some numbers to, to put this into perspective. A million people took him down, like I mentioned before, in 2019. That's out of an island of 3.4 million Boricuas. But it only took 80,000 votes out of an electorate of 2.3 million strong voting population in Puerto Rico to bring Rosario back to a powerful lobbying committee in favor of Puerto Rico's statehood. This does bring up concerns as this is essentially a shadow Congress pushed by the pro-statehood New Progressive Party, BNP, following last November's non-binding plebiscite vote where the option for statehood did narrowly garner the most votes. The push also comes after a statehood admissions bill uh, was formally presented to Congress in March, 
which we've talked about here on the show. And we actually uh, had a few guests on to talk about some data, uh, to talk about the policy behind that, especially that bill, um, especially as it relates to the Puerto Rican Self-Determination Act. Uh, but besides being sent to the U.S. Capitol to advocate for U.S. statehood, it's unclear how much these lobbyists will be paid. But on Sunday, Rosselló, in, well, see it to believe it news, uh, attempted to further save face since being ousted and said he would not take a salary as a part of the newly elected group. Another news story we found interesting was uh, a recent report by The Intercept. It's titled, The Right Wing Web Lobbying for Puerto Rican Statehood. In the report, it discusses that the pro-statehood New Progressive Party, NPP, the Republican Party, and one of Puerto Rico's wealthiest families have been hiring and hired high-profile corporate and anti-tax lobbyists to send to D.C. since 2013. And they've spent millions of dollars in this process. Since 2009, three entities have paid $13.7 million for federal lobbying. One of the main groups of lobbyists they have used also represents the consulting firm that represents Puerto Rico's debt. Let that sink in. Sounds like a great group. To make this cabal of uh, people even more fun, uh, these lobbyists are also linked to CoreCivic, the country's second largest for-profit prison corporation. These same lobbyists were hired to expand Puerto Rico's quote-unquote opportunity zones over the years. Again, as a reminder, opportunity zones are areas where investors can avoid taxes. This large portion of Puerto Rico's land has been made a beacon for rich investors who see it as an income and a property tax haven. But the link here also complicates things for the integrity of the push for statehood. Is the push for statehood being made in good faith? Is it being made to put profit over people? These are valid questions we should all be asking as discussions around Puerto Rico's status advances. Speaking of the relationship between the U.S. and Puerto Rico, this next news comes from Floriqua. Looks like the child tax credit from President Biden's American Rescue Plan will take a bit longer for Puerto Ricans on La Isla to receive. In the United States, all 50 states, eligible families will begin to get the benefit in July. Qualified households will receive up to $300 per month for each child under six and up to $250 per month for those between six and 17. Whoa, man, a lot of numbers. In short, if you got kids, you're going to get some money, which is great. Residents of Puerto Rico don't typically file federal income taxes, though, so parents will have to wait to submit the claim during Puerto Rico's next tax filing period from January to April 2022. Eligible families will receive the amount in full payment as a tax credit then. So Puerto Ricans will be able to claim this tax credit as of 2022 through a form that's called 1040PR. It's an IRS form like a W-4. On it, they can claim the tax credit. Why the US can't change this to get support to people that really need it is beyond me. But it's another example to show just how La Isla is treated as a second-class citizen when it comes to US policy. Okay, I'm sorry for all the upsetting and sad news in this rundown, but I'll end on a high note here. Found this one really, really interesting too. Um, so this is the last bit of news. It comes from Me Too. Um, but it was announced this week that Bad Bunny is now co-owner of Puerto Rico's Los Cangrejeros de Santurce basketball team. Uh, the Puerto Rican basketball team made the surprise announcement on Monday morning. Bad Bunny, his manager Noah Assad, and Rimas Entertainment's Jonathan Miranda are partners in reviving the basketball franchise. The team said in a statement, the main purpose and commitment of this initiative are to help foster positive change on the island and 
The goal is to promote a better future through sports, music, and the arts. The main objective is to encourage ideas and dreams in Puerto Rican youth, which will inspire an authentic and real social transformation. With the announcement of Bad Bunny as co-owner of Los Gangrejeros de Santurce, the basketball team also revealed an updated image and jerseys, which I will definitely be on the lookout for. If anyone listening has a good hookup on how I can get my hands on one of these jerseys, uh, let me know at JSDeLeon on Twitter, pretty please. Okay, that's all the news for today. Let's jump into the interview with Monica Cruz. Bienvenido a todos. This is the Paseo Podcast. Today we have Monica Cruz. She is a labor reporter for Breakthrough News and an organizer based in New York City. Uh, Monica, how are you today? Welcome to the Paseo Podcast. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Josh. I appreciate it. Right on. All right. We're really happy to have you here. Before we get into the nitty gritty about your reporting, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some um, labor legislation as well. What part of Puerto Rico is your family from? I am multiple generations uh, deep here in the U.S. It was my great grandma, uh, my great grandparents on both sides who immigrated um, from the islands. So my on my mom's side, my matrilineal, literally directly matrilineal, I can't even talk, uh, line um, is from Fajardo. Um, and I'm actually not sure where my dad's side of the family is from. From. Um, I'm not really in contact with him and his family. I have some guesses because they are um, Afro-Puerto Rican. And um, I know there's certain cities on the island where, you know, it's a, a much heavier density of Black Puerto Ricans. So definitely more. I need to do my 23 in me or whatever you call it. Um, <laughs> but test, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, my best friend's been pressuring me to do it. Um, she's from Peru and she found out a lot of really amazing things about her ancestry doing that. But um, but yeah, Fajardo is uh, where, where my heart is on the island for sure. I was able to visit there once a couple years ago. You are rooted in uh, a really cool media outlet. It's called Breakthrough News. Can you share a little bit about the outlet, how you got started reporting for them, and how you feel the outlet is different from typical mainstream media? Sure. So Breakthrough News is an independent media outlet. We, um, Our tagline is um, the media arm of the movement. And I think uh, that is definitely what we are founded on and what we've demonstrated since we launched a year ago. We actually launched the week that New York City shut down because um, coronavirus. Um, we're based here in New York. So um, it was a really interesting start to launch in the middle of a pandemic and have to go from doing dry runs and recording in the studio um, to working remotely and setting up at-home studios. But we've been pushing through and um, reporting on a lot of important things, um, really focused on, um, as our as our tagline suggests, um, the movement, um, the movements for social justice, um, here and all across the globe. Um, we have done a lot of really amazing on-the-ground reporting. Um, our, our folks were in... Um, we're in Minneapolis after George Floyd was killed. Um, so that that same weekend, they're covering the uprising. Um, 
my colleague um, Eugene, my co-host Eugene, a really fantastic um, longtime journalist, was in Haiti reporting on the uprising there um, over a month ago. I was in Alabama in Bessemer um, speaking with union organizers and workers there on um, organizing for the Amazon Union and also mine workers there on strike, um, still on strike at Warrior at Cole in Tuscaloosa County. So um, we've really been every uh, a lot of places. Um, uh, one of my colleagues also went to Venezuela to uh, cover the legislative election there a couple months ago. Um, and we are really just um, rooted in a politic of uplifting um, the working class, uplifting our stories, uplifting our narratives and our truths and our history. And I think one thing that uh, distinguishes us from the mainstream media most definitely is the fact that we are not owned by one of the five corporations that dominates our media landscape. Um, you know, 90% of the media we consume here in the U.S. is owned by one of these five uh, you know, conglomerates, billion dollar multinational corporations that, you know, are, are not reporting in our interests, to say the least. So uh, Breakthrough is more than just a media project. It's a political project to really smash through um, the 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 spin, the analysis, the perspectives that we get when we turn on the TV, when we log into Twitter, wherever most of the time um, we are presenting a, a politic that is that is of the left, that is really progressive, um, and that is uh, rooted in an understanding that capitalism is is the beast, is the ultimate. Um, uh, enemy to the people of this world, um, of every corner of this world, and that we all have something to gain by fighting and struggling together and, and building a, a different future. And uh, I'm a socialist. Uh, all the folks on the team pretty much are socialists. So that's definitely the politics that guides us. And um, yeah, we don't try to sit there and play around like media can be biased because it can't be it can't not be like let, that's just I think that's such a um that's a lie that we're taught that I was taught as a communication student you know in college I'm like but how can media be biased if all these corporations own everything we consume it'll make no sense right so we're out here um I got this opportunity you know um through uh, the organizing work that I've been doing um since I was in college here in New York and uh it was some folks uh that I really look up to and respect in the movement that have been trying to get this project together for a while and you know decide you know, the time is now. And that's how I started working for the project and how it came to be. And it's been uh, really incredible so far. This week in particular, we've been doing some really excellent coverage on Palestine that I really would recommend that people check out because uh, it's stuff you really can't find anywhere else. Everything you just mentioned, I think it shows the, the expansive nature of what y'all are willing to cover and the lens at which you're willing to cover that through. And to your point, I mean, if people want to, I mean, you can People can look this stuff up. I mean, I'm not saying anything you don't already know. But people can look this stuff up yeah. about these five companies. I mean, even like local broadcast stations, you think they're all locally based. Yeah. I mean, look up Sinclair oh, no. Broadcasting. It's like literally memos that just go out to, mm -hmm. to broadcast stations on what they're, what they're going to say. Um, mm -hmm. So it's very formulaic, and it's very much through a conservative, if not a moderate lens. So to have mm -hmm. independent news outlets shaking things up and like bringing to the top, bubbling up these these uh, stories that aren't normally covered in traditional media, it's a beautiful thing. Um, it's actually interesting mm -hmm. to see kind of how the audiences are trending, um, where like independent media is seeing more listenership, more readership, more engagement, mm -hmm. and your mainstream media outlets like your CNNs, your MSNBCs, even your Fox Newses are just kind of 
on this mm-hmm. steep decline in, in engagement and in, in audiences. So yeah, there's definitely a shift happening. Um, people so. aren't dumb. People, people see the same talking points being reiterated. There's so many videos that have gone oh, viral yeah, totally. of, you know, those local news stations, like you mentioned, it's like clip after clip of them saying like literally the exact same thing. And also I think uh, one thing that one positive that I would say the pandemic has brought about is really just exposing the powers that be in a way um, that we haven't seen in our lifetime at least um, and in a really long time in this country. So I think mm-hmm. people are starting to recognize that these quote unquote two sides of the coin are actually two sides of the ca- um, two sides of the of the aisle are actually two sides of the same coin and are are really pushing forward the same interest and you know are, are not representing what most people care about and mm-hmm. what people want to hear about. You mentioned going to college for communications. Uh, right. What was that moment when you were like, Mainstream media is full of it. Like, like we need to uh, we need to change it up because I mean I, I'd imagine going to college for communications. There's a set curriculum. You know, you're kind of taught to look at things through a certain your practice through a certain way. It's like, what was that moment where you were like, I want to go into journalism. I want to be a labor journalist specifically, and mm. this is how I want to report. I was studying communications in, in, in college. I double majored in political science and communications because, yeah, I always wanted to work in journalism. I always wanted to work in media, but it I just started to very quickly become like nihilistic and just like very jaded about the world around me because, yeah, I was learning about the media industry as a whole. I grew up watching news and was just like, all I see is just constant like death and violence and war. I was like, who's addressing this? Like, and I came to realize neither of the political parties were addressing, major political parties were addressing this and they were very much part of it. And um, so it kind of coincided with my political development, really, you know, my interest in media and, and what I saw the role I could play in media was. But by the end of like my sophomore year, I was just like, honestly, screw a job in journalism. I was like, this, I'm going to be getting super underpaid. Like there are so few opportunities out there. You know, I'm not going to be able to have a say in the work that I do. Like, you know, these huge media industries and, you know, monopolies, whatever, like terminology I was using back then before I became a Marxist. Like I was just like, nah, like this is just not what I want to live with. And I want to be able to afford a a decent lifestyle, pay off my college debt. And, you know, I graduated in 2016, which is, you know, like the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. And it's just a really dismal time. You know, like I was like, I'm going to graduate. And it's like, what is the likelihood of me even being able to find a job? Like I felt so down about it. And I was like, how am I going to survive? How am I going to survive, you know, being able to live by myself in New York and stuff. So Really, basically, by the time I graduated, I was like, I'm just committing myself to organizing. I, I became polit- radically politically active um, in my organization, um, the PSL, Party for Socialism and Liberation, um, by the end of my sophomore year as well. So it was around that time I was just like, I'm just throwing myself into this organizing stuff because this is the only way out. This is the only way to to win a better world, a better future for myself and for everyone around me, you know, and, and all the things that I had been fighting for, you know, um, and always feeling like I was hitting a dead end, um, discovering socialism and in Marxist politics and, and actually reading Marx in my philosophy class as a college student before I actually met a Marxist organization. I'm just sitting there like, it was the same moment when we're learning about like 
90% of the media we consume is owned by five corporations. I'm just sitting there like, am I the only one hearing this right now? Like, and, um, and that wasn't the crowds that has because at Fordham, it was like a bunch of like largely really like upper middle class, like white folks. And that was another thing that really politicized me in that time of my life too. Cause it was the first time I was like really faced with like, wow, like there are super rich people and what, and racism, like, it was just like, what? Like, of course those were things I experienced growing up, but it was just on a whole nother level. But when I'm sitting there reading Marx, I'm like, this is reality. I was like, this this is the world today. Why are we talking about this? Like it's some like far off like idea and like, you know, just philosophical concept that has no uh, rootedness, you know, in, in material reality. So it thing it just felt like a domino effect and everything kind of happened, you know, in perfect timing. But by, by the end of my college career, I was like, fuck trying to do a media job like what am I gonna get out of that like I'm gonna get a shitty salary I'm not gonna be able to to do the work that I want to do I remember around that time I I was getting to know um you know in person through the movement you know um uh, journalists like Ben Norton and Abby Martin like really amazing um progressive leftist journalists uh you know talking about imperialism and doing that kind of reporting and I would see the way that they had very limited opportunities within that small you know left media world that actually since that time I feel like has really expanded but I was just kind of like I, I just felt like so hard on myself I'm like I'm a black, black woman too you know like am I even gonna fit in some of these spaces like it was just I was like I'm just gonna organize full-time and then just get a basic nine to five and that's what I did until breakthrough came to be and you know one of you know uh, my mentors in the movement someone who I, I really look up to and has taught me a lot and been an amazing leader um, and you know just someone I I've I, been able to confide in a lot over the years like just a real OG in my life he was just like yo like do you want to be part of this project you want to host I'm just like okay I'm like I have never done that before but okay I mean maybe for making like a this I for making like a two minute long like cultural package I did that for one year I did do broadcast journalism for like a semester in college um um at, at our, our student run tv station but that was all of my media experience and editing you know newspapers that was all of my media experience I've never been on a camera doing media besides that one experience in college um I had never produced written and and recorded and edited a whole thing um so it's been a, a definitely a learning experience but something that I'm so excited and honored to do and you know at with uh, as someone with the politics that I have that's literally just completely the foundation is uplifting workers and and fighting for our class I think the opportunity to be able to build with workers, to talk with workers and to share their stories is something that, yeah, I'm just really honored and grateful to do. And it's just taught me so much in the past year. Um, and I feel like I have a lot more to learn for sure. But um, that, that's how I got here. It's long winded. It's a lot. But here we are. <laughs> there are moments where if a union's taking a stand, puts out a press release, goes on strike, the demonization that starts to come out of the woodwork for towards those union leaders uh, from very powerful outlets. Um, good example here in Chicago, we have the Chicago Teachers Union who protested a couple years back. Um, and there, and I, I know you're in New York, so I don't know how if that news like reached over over to that side of the states, but yeah, yeah, um, for sure. You know, we had a situation where we didn't have social workers in our schools. We didn't have nurses mm. in our schools. And if we did, mm -hmm. you know, maybe they were there a day or two if a school mm -hmm. was lucky. And I mean, just imagining like if you're a parent and you're letting your kid go to you're you're sending your kid off to school and say, well, hey, 
don't get hurt on Tuesdays because the nurse isn't in until, you know, a couple of days from now. They're only in on Thursdays. Um, so the, the teachers union had, had gone on strike um, for a number of reasons, but those were two core elements. And yeah. we had out, we had, we had journalists like talking trash to them. And Monica, I tell you, I love it when like top tier news outlets think that they are like the smartest person in the room and like throw out these commentaries as, as if they know the temperature of the people. And we actually right. had a majority, a big majority in Chicago of people that were in support of the Chicago teachers union right. strike. So talk about like embarrassing. Well, they probably would never admit that they were wrong or they were embarrassed. These top tier right. outlets um, or these journalists. Oh, it's so but... crazy! I'm such a huge fan. Oh. I love the Chicago Teachers Union. They are just I'm one of the stars. most radical, the most militant unions um, in this yeah. country. They set an example um, to other teachers unions. Um, a lot of uh, my friends and, and and people that I know in the movement here that I've organized with who are teachers and in, in New York City public schools were just like. We need to take, you know, our union leadership needs to take notes and, you know, and that's totally right for people to have their critiques. But no, we don't need to hear that from y'all like right. red and blue media operatives. Like we don't need to hear that at all. But it, it's been really that I appreciate how you bring that up because it has been really particularly wild. The stuff that I've been seeing coming at the CTU, like y'all are so disrespectful. Like I need a. I had my Twitter finger days in college and in high school. I'm over that. I'm too old for that. And I, I'll get in trouble. Um, I have who would find me on that. But it's like, y'all really be testing people because get out of here. Um, yeah. Anyway, mad yeah. love to the CTU. Yeah, hey, mad love to the CTU. Stacey Davis Gates, the whole crew out there. Mm. Um, they, they do some good work and they really stand up for the most vulnerable in our city that the powers that be make it a point to run on addressing the issues that affect our communities, especially our BIPOC communities. But when it comes down to an organization taking a stand and advocating for the resources, all of a sudden, oh, and we don't know where we're, we're, we're going to get the money from. Uh, the, the, the negotiating is getting a little difficult. I don't know. We yeah. can't come to a compromise. Like, oh, like any excuse you can think of just comes out of the woodwork. Um, and I think it right. speaks to a larger issue um, on our outlook for uh, on unions. I mean, I think when we... You had mentioned, um, Monica, like looking at the 40s, 50s, and 60s and that decline. I mean, uh, I'm trying to remember this exact stat, but I want to say it was the Economic Policy Institute that showed it was a it was a line graph that showed as union membership had fallen, the income going to the top 10% had just skyrocketed <laughs> like, mm -hmm. out of this world. Um, mm -hmm. And it, I mean, you look at before unions came to this uh, this rise in prominence, 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, kind of looking before that, like the Vanderbilt, the uh, Carnegie, the Rockefeller years, there was that that gap. As soon as unions started to come in, that you know, it started to kind of level yeah. out, and there was some equality there. Um, mm -hmm. And just 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 the systematic systematic dismantling of union power and uh, the decline in union membership. We've kind of gotten to a point where this stuff is it's like politics to a certain extent where it's almost gotten too complicated and there's so much context that we don't really have the language to talk about these things generally with our within our social circles um so i think again that not to blow smoke here but i think that you know really speaks yeah, yeah. to the importance of having independent uh news outlets because there mm -hmm. there is a decline and we're seeing now with our current economic status the pandemic there is a rising support for unions, but there's still that lack of understanding. And there's still those um, obstacles that if, uh, like we'll talk about Alabama in a second in the Amazon warehouse there, that you might have people that really want to join a union, but there is a system in place that 
it's not necessarily makes them hesitant about joining a union because they don't want to pay dues. It's more from the standpoint of, well, if I do this, what's to prevent a corporation from just moving their warehouse? What's to prevent them from firing me? Um, And yeah, there's, we have laws that try to slap the hands of corporations if they try to intimidate people, but there's no teeth to it. There's like no accountability. Um, We'll talk about the PRO Act too, because that's a legislation Mm -hmm. I'm excited about. And I think that's going to help address a lot of these issues that prevent unions Mm -hmm. from um, forming or organizing. I did want to jump around. You mentioned you were, you're in Alabama. I would love to hear, like you also host the, on the picket line podcast. I would love to hear from you, like from your reporting in Alabama, you know, from your conversations with, with workers, uh, the conversations you have on your podcast, like what were you, what were some of like the common themes in your conversations with workers, either, on picket lines, on the podcast, when you were in, in Alabama, like what, what were some of the common themes you were seeing? And did you speak to any Puerto Rican, Puerto Ricans in labor, either workers or, or uh, leaders? Just interested. The the first thing I think of um, that's a common thread, and that I think to me is very exciting as a socialist, and I think indicative of the changing times that we're in in terms of political consciousness in this country. People know that their bosses are on vacation, are making millions of dollars, have seen their wealth in in some cases triple. You know, we're talking about trillions of dollars, like a number that we cannot even wrap our minds around. Like people see that and people are pissed and people are tired of management. No matter what industry you talk to, this is the same sentiment that I hear. People are tired of management just treating them like they're dumb and treating them that they're like they're less than human. You know, um, people are seeing these things. It's a quote that I, I overuse so much in interviews, but I really love it so much. And it's a quote by Marx where he basically says that the, the capitalist class digs its own grave. And I think that's what we're seeing so much throughout this pandemic. Just the the raw inhumanity in which they have operated. But I think just the the way the sheer brutality the the callousness the and just the arrogance that they move with i think to me and again this past year has been a turning point and people are seeing this um in ways that they've never recognized or been able to articulate before and because we always know, I remember growing up and stuff, I was like, those corporations, like, I didn't know, I was like, those rich people, like, it's like, we don't really know who they are, or like, can put a name to it, you know, we can find it out really quickly, thanks to Google, but it's like, you know, like, we don't really know, we don't get that political political education, right, but we know intrinsically through, through our experiences as workers, right, so people are just speaking about that in ways that it's like, as someone who's been in the movement, and been around a lot of socialists, and Marxists, and people, you know, who are entire politics is rooted in workers' history and, and struggling for our class, you know, people who have never been in a political space like ours and who are, again, are just everyday people who were galvanized to do, to fight for their union, to fight for a union or to go on strike, whatever, just literally because of the material circumstances that we're in. Ain't no rhetoric, ain't no Twitter, ain't no book that they've read, you know, to me has been 
powerful. I mean, that's always existed. We always knew that. But I think this pandemic has has marked something different um, because the, the ruling class has just gone so far, too far, and really just exposed itself. And I think another thing that ties into the PRO Act, as you were talking about, um, that I've noticed and that's been a common sentiment is the fact that people see that the system is stacked against them in every single way. And, and that was one thing that um, the workers in Alabama spoke so well to. They were like, if the PRO Act was in existence, this hellhole anti-union campaign that we went through in this BS election that was just not accurate, not, I can go into all the numbers and exactly the rundown and timeline of that, but that was not, not accurate and not representative of what the workers at the Bessemer Warehouse want. Um, you know, they know it was, it's because of the fact that the NLRB, as you said so well, has no teeth, um, has no real, uh, ability to, to be able to, um, hold these corporations accountable. Cause that's not what this system is, is built to do. It's a thing we hear in the police brutality and, you know, the abolition movement, you know, like this is not, th the system is functioning as it's supposed to. The system is not broken. The system is working as it, as it's supposed to, which is to, to oppress us as workers. So I think people are are becoming more hip to understanding how um, the powers that be function and how that impacts their material reality as workers. And, you know, one uh, just news that I'll throw in there um, that was really no surprise at all. Um, there was so much contention um, over uh, in, 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 at the Amazon warehouse in, in Bessemer, Alabama, over a mailbox that was set up outside of the warehouse front doors that Amazon said, we don't know where this came from. That has a big sign that says vote right here, cast your ballot right here. I mean, that is just that is just voter intimidation, union voter intimidation, like on steroids, like something that was really just unseen and, and really shocking. Like we know how far Amazon is willing to go, but that was was stunning to a lot of people, even in the, in the labor movement. And it was just officially confirmed this week that who had the keys to those mailbox the whole time? Oh, the management at at the warehouse. Like no one was surprised, but Amazon literally colluded with the USPS. They were lying. They was all lying. We know that Amazon lies, but USPS was lying too. And even with all of this, with all of every single law that Amazon so flagrantly broke during this entire process, not just in Alabama, you know, of course, but in, at union drives, crushing union drives all over the country at their warehouses, um, you know, one thing was just the fact that, um, and one thing that union organizers, when I was out, you know, having dinner um, with some of them when I was in Birmingham, they were just like, the one thing that really bothers us and bothers the workers the most out of all of this is the fact that the most that happens with this union election is that it gets tossed out, that the NLRB finds that, you know, Amazon, Amazon, um, you know, did, did that interference um, and, you know, the election gets tossed out. It's a, it's a barely a slap in the wrist to Amazon. Like they are not going to be taken to account on any of those actions. Right. So I think um, to me, that's one thing that has been, or a couple of things that have been very common themes. Um, people are fighting for their dignity they are sick and tired. They understand who their enemy is and they're starting to see what needs to be done to make union organizing um, and to make um, organizing at the workplace in general much easier today. 
the beautiful thing about unions is that it can be a, co a great coalition building effort. It's not about your background, your faith, your identity. It's about your class. It's about where you are within our society and demanding more to be demanded to be treated as a human being. That's right. Let's talk a little bit about the PRO Act. Mm -hmm. This is a, a big part of the Biden administration's infrastructure package. Can you give us a quick rundown? Um, what is the PRO Act? PRO Act essentially is um, a sweeping um, reform of this country's uh, labor laws, and it would essentially uh, totally repeal right-to-work laws across every state and includes a bunch of other measures that would increase penalties on, on companies found to uh, be engaging in union busting behavior and basically just streamline um, the, the uh, process to, to start a union, uh, among a lot of other things. So um, the, the biggest piece of it is definitely right to work, as you, you mentioned and you described so well. Um, back in March, I did a, a really great interview with Cooper Carraway, who is uh, uh, the president of the F AFL-CIO um, uh, in South the South Dakota Federation of Labor, um, that unit of the of the union, and he did a really great job explaining um, the PRO Act and its history, which was really a racist history, really a tool um, to divide black and white workers, um, specifically in the South and in the Midwest, um, and. It was based on a lie about unions that, you know, uh, unions were bad for you and unions were just like a black communist thing, which eh, a little bit of that was true. We talk about um, the Alabama communists, um, you know, who um, created the foundation for what the, 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 the black Amazon workers, you know, uh, are, are organizing on now. But, you know, uh, you know, be that as it may, it's uh, really just going to be fundamental to making um, unionizing at, uh, easier in this country and um, really just be an overall benefit to every single worker, even workers that are not in unions. So um, to me, it it is something that the Democrats need to just get it together and the filibuster, like what's going on here? Um, there's no excuse. Um, yeah. I already put my politics out there, you know, um, and I think the Democrats are um, doing what their tactic always is, right? To act as if they have no options, to let the, the, the Republicans play hardball time and time again, mm -hmm. and then say, oh, well, to do this, we have to do this. And, you know, to do that, we have to give up on this, right? We we have to toss out the $15 minimum wage or whatever it is, you know, that week um, that they're that they're capitulating on. Right. Um, after they negotiate themselves months. down. They ne no, yeah. no, it's like they just they have all the they can have all the cards on the table for them. Like the stacks in their favor, the Dems, and they just yep. negotiate themselves down yep. like the $2,000 stimulus checks. They ran on that. I'd make the argument they won Georgia by running right. on that. We're going to get you $2,000 checks right away. Just elect us. And what happened? Well, you know, we're going to bring it down to 1400 And, uh, well, if you, like, apply for unemployment, get another 600 And if you do the math on that, you get 2000 yeah. And, you know, it works out. We filled our promise. Nah. No, they try to act like Come they said it's two stimulus checks Come instead on. of one because it's 600 The 14 I that's going to be the latest tagline. I, I never thought I'd be in a moment where I'd say we got more money from Donald Trump than we did from Joe Biden. Like, 
Yo, that blows my mind. That shit is real. Um, it's real. But some other thoughts on the on the PRO Act. Um, I just was doing some research on this and I'm a big fan of this legislation. You know, I, like we mentioned before, eliminating right to work. That means the 27 states that do have right to work laws, mm-hmm. boom, wiped out um, immediately would make a difference for for unionization efforts. Uh, allowing gig workers to unionize. I've talked about right. this on the show. You might judge me a little bit, but uh, I used to be a big wrestling fan back in the day. Um, and no, I stopped, especially with, you know, actually, I kind of watched last WrestleMania because Bad Bunny was wrestling. So I'm not perfect. Oh my God. But, you had to, a body icon. My uh, mom was sending me videos nonstop. He was, he, I love him. He was throwing down. I was like, all right, man, you should, you, you found your calling. Life. Yeah. I was so happy for him. I'm all for I'm it. like, make your dreams come true. Yes. Yes, yes. Um, but on a more like, love you, Benito. Pr- of course, of course, San Benito in the building. Um, uh, yeah, no, I was just gonna say, you know, with, with wrestling, they are I stopped watching because I realized that they were all um, listed as independent contractors, meaning mm. these men and women, um, or, or people that don't um, prescribe to the, the uh, gender roles, like, they were uh, putting their, they are, they were putting their lives on the line, doing these like mm-hmm. very athletic, acrobatic moves, getting injured, um, and just in these really horrible contracts. The uh, World mm-hmm. Wrestling Entertainment wasn't, would control what they could and c- could and couldn't do outside of work hours. Um, if someone was injured, that was just more time added to their contract, like some really mm-hmm. shady stuff. But, um, the the wrestling organization could just fire them at a, a at the drop of mm-hmm. a hat and even put in a like a 90 month no non-compete clause so if you're paying yeah. for your own travel your hotel stay your medical expenses for me i just like tuned out and that's what that was like my introduction to this concept of being an independent mm-hmm. contractor which is also what uber drivers are lyft drivers are a lot of like gig workers are this so with the pro act that would allow gig workers to unionize that would be tremendous Mm-hmm. Um, legalizing uh, secondary strikes and slowdowns. You mentioned uh, mm-hmm. the Teamster, the Teamster um, protest in New York a few months back. I mean, you could have grocery store workers uh, uh, protesting, and the Teamsters saying we're not going to deliver to this place where grocery workers mm-hmm. are protesting. And this like awesome moment of solidarity that would mm-hmm. just this act would just open the doors for. Um, mm-hmm. banning union busting tactics like we talked about before mm-hmm. um, and also forcing contract resolutions. We mentioned how, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of these management, a lot of management can come to these contract negotiations with unions and really come mm-hmm. to them with bad faith. This would actually mm-hmm. ensure that, no, a resolution has to come out of these discussions one way or another. Right. You can't just come up with an excuse, backtrack, and then you're in the same place as you started. Um, right. Those are just kind of like the high level things, but, you know, what a revolutionary legislation if this if this passes. It really would be a new day for labor. And I appreciate you bringing up the gig workers piece because yeah. that's something that has been um, the center of like a lot of just name whatever debate you want to call it. Just uh, I would say some either straight up BS from people who are in the wallets of, you know, the gig economy giants and, you know, those who are really there on the ground doing this work. Um, You know, shout out to Gig Workers Rising, um, which is a really dope organization doing um, a lot of work around, you know, this issue out in California. I was able to speak with uh, one of their organizers 
a couple of times actually um, a few months ago when I was doing video segments before on the picket line turned to um, turn to a uh, podcast but um, but you can still find those on our YouTube on breakthrough news um, and basically you know she is a she's a, an uber driver a mom a black woman in california who um was putting in a lot of work um to stop the passage of proposition 22 in cali um that would you know yeah basically just rolled back um a really progressive reform that cali had put into place um for gig workers um to allow them to to um to file as full-time employees and have access to so many benefits or really it essentially just created uh, a new class for them and you know it was like a record amount of money spent into um the the anti-proposition or i'm sorry the uh pro-proposition 22 um uh advertising that was going on there we're talking about uber drivers couldn't even like log into their accounts without having to like press through like eight slides of, of propaganda so um yeah, that's really, and Miss uh, Kamala or Kapala, whatever you want to call her, Harris, um, actually her her husband had a really big part in um, getting that uh, passed in Cali and um, had been like penning op-eds and stuff in, in favor of the proposition, just really sick stuff. But, um, you know, it, it's a it's a, a very um, historic time um, for labor, to say the least, um, where we have, you know, people who literally down to the minute every minute of your labor is being monetized is being tracked right now um and i think we we need to give the labor movement uh exactly i'll say it again as you said the teeth that it needs um the real power the punch that it needs and that is what the proact is going to give uh, the working class of america so we need it let's go let's do it send it to get it together we need it most definitely and you know the we talk about these shifts in political parties. You know, the Democrats want to say they're the party of the working class. The Republicans want to say they're the party of the working class. So if they're oh. both, if they're both parties of the working class, <laughs> then there should be no issue with the Pro Act passing. That's right. Let's get it done. We're going to take a quick pause for the cause, pero no se muevan, porque when we come back, Monica and I are going to wrap up our discussion with her best place to eat, Puerto Rican food, and what she is most obsessed with today. Stay with us. Los medios de comunicación locales son esenciales. En 2020, cuando las comunidades, las empresas y los ciudadanos se enfrentaron a una pandemia que interrumpió el flujo de la vida cotidiana, aumentó la necesidad de información local precisa. Información que incluyera qué negocios estaban abiertos, cuáles cerrados, dónde hacerse las pruebas, dónde encontrar ayuda. Pero cuando los medios de comunicación cerraron sus redacciones y se alejaron, la información no se detuvo. Exigieron responsabilidades al gobierno local, documentaron momentos históricos para la justicia social, compartieron la humanidad detrás de la tragedia. Mientras tanto, la financiación de ese trabajo se estaba agotando. Las empresas cuyos anuncios ayudaban a sostener los medios de comunicación cerraron o se paralizaron. Los ingresos desaparecieron. Donar hoy en SaveChicagoMedia.org puede garantizar que su redacción local siga informando de las historias que importan a pesar de la economía actual. Invertir en los medios de comunicación locales es financiar tu comunidad. Dona hoy para ayudarnos a hacer el trabajo que importa. Dona ahora en SaveChicagoMedia.org we want to take this moment to say thank you again for listening. When you download our podcast or subscribe to the podcast itself, that makes a world of difference. So gracias for taking your time to listen to us. 
We also want to take this time to thank the sponsor of today's episode. This episode would not be possible without the generous support of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. The Puerto Rican Cultural Center, located at 2546 West Division Street, right here in Chicago, is a community-based grassroots educational health and cultural services organization founded on the principles of self-determination, self-actualization, and self-sufficiency that is all activist-oriented. For more information on the work they do, give them a visit at their website at prcc-chgo.org. Again, that's prcc-chgo.org. Now, if you or anyone else you know would like to be a sponsor of the Paseo Podcast, please email us at paseopod at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-E-O-P-O-D at gmail.com. Tell them Joshua from Humble Park sent you. Super curious, you're in New York. What's your favorite place to eat Puerto Rican food? Everyone knows Uptown Bronx Caridad is 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 a staple. Like anytime you're trying to just get some con pollo, or they had some at the spot around my old place in Harlem, they had some really good fed meal. Um, so I would I would say that. Mm. I wish I could give a better answer about Jersey though, but I will hey, let you know. It's all good. All the spots that I go to, I don't remember the name of them. Growing up, I would go to Patterson, Passaic, Clifton, where my family is from, and that and any I will say any Puerto Rican spot you in Patterson, you in Passaic, and Clifton in Jersey, any Puerto Rican spot is going to be good. Period. <laughs> like maybe I I might I might buy my talk on that later, but um, growing up, that when I would I just have nothing but good memories of that. Oh, that's awesome. Well, and I and I I meant to mention New Jersey in there too. I totally forgot about that. You're like you're living in there, there a little hybrid. Um, then I think this is a common theme because we asked this question to we've asked this question to past guests, and Mofongo seems to be like the one thing that people just get really disappointed by. It's hard to find a good spot that does Mofongo yes. real well. So. Anyway, it's either too wet or too dry, or yes. like just oh. the meat or the shrimp isn't good. Dry mofongo, like, mm, the words, but and then it's like weird when it's like too wet and soggy. It's like right. it just needs that in between. I think that's why it's hard, and then yeah. it's so hard to actually make. But I would love to make it one day, actually. Um, of course, the best mofongo I ever had was you know uh, on the island. Um, that was a dream. All right. Well, hopefully one day you get to live out that dream of making the perfect mofongo at home. Um, and then you can share the recipe with us. Um, yes. What are you most obsessed with today? It can be related to Puerto Rican culture, unrelated to Puerto Rican culture, hobbies, TVs, movies, whatever. What are you most obsessed with today? Everything is food related. Because I was even like, course, honestly, yeah. that was a question that was in the back of my head this whole interview. Because I'm like... Hmm. <laughs> like, what am I like actually like fiending for? And it has to be food, honestly. And it is this bakery in uh my in my town, uh, West New York. They have a couple of different um. They have a location in Jersey City too, um, and somewhere else here in North Jersey. But um, it's called Dolce de Leche. Um, and it is the spot. I just moved here two months ago, and I. Anytime, it, I live right by this spot called Bergen Line. Um, anyone from New Jersey or New, or New York City knows Bergen Line. It's just a big shopping and, and restaurant center. It's like a whole strip of just like stores and restaurants, everything. Um, and 
everywhere you go in Bergen Line, everyone has a Dolce de Leche bakery bag. Like that is just what I've learned very quickly. And then my um, my close friend who's from the Bronx and lives in the Bronx, um, she she tried it and she has been so obsessed. And even though we're hanging out in the city tomorrow, she is coming to Jersey first to meet me up because she was like, I need it. And I'm like, girl, me too. I haven't been in a week. I haven't been in a week. And I'm like, I need it. And it was my mom's birthday last weekend, and we got a, a tres leche cake from them. And it was the first time I've ever had tres leche where they put dolce de leche, a layer of it, in there. Mm-hmm. And they also put fresh fruit in it. They put strawberry and peaches. It was so good. Like, it was like four cakes in one, and everyone was so blown away. I know. Now I'm like, I'm so I'm <laughs> going tomorrow morning. That's why I said we're talking about obsessions. I was like, that has to be the obsession because that is literally like has been it. But um, oh my god, it's so good. If you're ever if you're ever here on this side, definitely recommend Dolce de Leche Bakery. It's Argentinian actually. Um, okay. but they make all the standard Latino, you know, fair classics. So oh, I love great. That. Okay, definitely adding that to the list if I ever make it out to NYC. Um, <laughs> love to hear it. Um, okay. Well, Monica, we really really appreciate the time you've given us today. Um for people listening that want to keep up with you after they hear this interview. Uh, do you have a website people can go to, social media? Um, give us all the things. How can people keep up with you? So you can follow Breakthrough News at BT Newsroom on Twitter and on Instagram. And find us Breakthrough News um, anywhere else. We're on YouTube, um, on Facebook, on Patreon. Um, check out our Patreon. We have exclusive content that's dope. Um, and it's spelled Breakthrough as you would normally spell it. And you can follow me on Twitter. Um, I'm not super active on Instagram. Um, but if you want to go ahead, give me a follow. Um it's at Palante Mami. Um, P I we're gonna say P A L N A L A N T E M A M I. Just in case, but I'm pretty sure most of this audience might know. Of course, that comes from the amazing revolutionary slogan um, "Palante siempre." So um, yes, at Palante Mami on on Twitter, where I'm most active. You can find all of my all of my reporting there. Okay, Monica Cruz. Thank you so much, labor reporter for Breakthrough News. Really appreciate you being on the show today. We appreciate it. Happy to be here. That's our show for today, familia. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did or didn't, let us know. Podcast at gmail.com or at Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Stay tuned next week for an all-new episode of the podcast. Our guest will be Omar Torres Courtright. He's the executive director of the Segundo Ruiz Belvis Puerto Rican Cultural Center here in Chicago, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. It's actually the longest standing Latinx cultural organization in Chicago, too. So uh, we'll have him on and a community partner to talk about what the cultural center's history is, its namesake, and what the years ahead have in store. Until then, as always... If you want to pitch a story idea, nominate yourself or someone else for an interview, or share a new story you'd like us to discuss on the show, visit our website, baseomedia.org, to do just that. See you next week. Without our awesome guests, this podcast would not be possible. And without you, our listeners, this would not be possible. So we really appreciate you listening. If you want to reach out to the show, connect with us by visiting our website, baseomedia.org emailing us at baseopodcast at gmail.com and following us at baseopodcast on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a tip, want to pitch a story, or send us a compliment, 
We love to hear from you. Thanks for downloading this episode and see you next week. Cuídate.